Father, show us your glory that you have made visible in the most unexpected and unanticipated way through a cross, an instrument of execution, because there you put not only your glory on display, but your grace. Thank you for Jesus. May we see him in all of his glory this morning, walking on the sea to rescue his disciples. And may we see there on the Sea of Galilee a shadow of a cross where Jesus will not only climb into a boat to save his people, but onto a cross to save his people. So keep the cross before us this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love as we see Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. If you notice down front here, we do have the communion table ready and set up. So if you came in this morning without picking up a cup for communion, you just make your way out right now. That's fine. You won't miss any of the sermon because I have a rather lengthy um, introduction in which I'm going to introduce to you and the newest member of our family. But in, before we get there, let me just encourage you to open your copies of the scriptures to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And every once in, a while, once in a while, as we're making our way through Mark's gospel, it's good for us to kind of just reorient ourselves. And to remind ourselves where we are in the story and who the story is really all about. When it comes to the Gospels, when it comes to these men writing who had seen Jesus and walked with Jesus. Now Mark doesn't see Jesus or, or, or walk with Jesus. He gets his information for his Gospel from the Apostle Peter. But it's important as we read what they write to remember that Christ is the main character in the story. That it all revolves around him. Because it's so easy for us in texts like we're going to see today in a very familiar text where Jesus is walking on the water to kind of just place ourselves in the story without remembering that Jesus is the point of the story. And that our identity is found only in Him and who He is and what He has done for us and in us. And then when we come to Him, what He does through us. But if we make this story, a very familiar story again, all about us, we miss the big point. And that's the reason why every time I stand before you and preach, I have two goals in mind. Here they are. When you walk out of this room, here's where I, what I want for you. Number one, that you will think higher thoughts of Christ. And number two, that you will fall deeper in love with Christ. May God grant us those goals this morning. As we pick up the text in Mark chapter 6 and beginning in verse 45 where we read, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw 
that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And then about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. This is the word of our God. And may he write its truth deep within our hearts this morning. So if you look at the screen... I want to introduce you to the newest member of our family. By the way, the newest member of our family is not the green pig there. It is, it is the 80-pound labradoodle named Rocky. So many of, you know, many of you know that we do have a new dog. He came to us pre-named and pre-named appropriately as Rocky because that describes our relationship with him. He is a, you can see this as you look at him, you can just see it all about him. He is a rather cheeky and shaggy fellow. And we're about three months into this relationship and the jury is still out because he thinks his whole reason for being is to train us to become the dog owners he wants us to be because he loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. But that's not going to happen. His human owners are going to win this war if it's the last thing we do. We're bigger and stronger and will likely live longer. So we are the trainers and Rocky is the trainee. Now we snicker at that. But isn't that sometimes the mindset we have in our relationship with Jesus? He's king, he's Lord, he's God, we're not. But so often, if God were to give us what we want, then he would realize that the world revolves around us and our decisions and our dreams, and he really should ask our permission to move into our territory and blow up our plans. But listen, Jesus is the trainer. We are the trainees He's training us on how to do life with him as we follow him. And that's the 12 disciples right here in Mark chapter 6. Jesus has been training them for nearly 18 months now. But they're still so slow to believe that he really is the son of God. Even after what's happened right here in Mark chapter 6, even after he has just fed more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, even when there are precisely 12 baskets full left over, one for each disciple to hold in their very hands to show them that he is the Son of God and that as the Son of God, he is enough for each of them. And when they are holding those baskets full of bread and fish in their hands, Jesus is showing them the truth of who he is and how that truth is intended to intersect with real life in each of their lives. 
And so the big idea this morning of Mark 6, verses 45 through 52 is this. The identity of Jesus isn't just something to be affirmed. It's something to be applied in our everyday lives. It's so easy for us to sit in this room on Sundays or for me to stand behind this pulpit on Sundays and to say, yes, yes, we believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. We believe that he's got the whole world in his hands. He's my Savior, my God, my King. Amen and amen. But you know where that faith is validated? In the everyday stuff of life. Like when we leave this room and we head home and then we open the front door and bam, there it is. Reality hits again. There's a problem, there's a difficulty, there's a storm. How quickly we can go from saying, wow, God, to saying, whoa, God. But it's in those storms, it's in those difficulties, it's in those trials that our beliefs, our true beliefs are both revealed and sealed. And that's why Jesus is sending his disciples into another situation that's above their pay grade. It's so that they will learn to connect the dots between who Jesus is to their real lives. And so... Jesus sends his disciples into a storm. You okay with that? Because when Jesus dismisses the 5,000 plus crowd who has just been there to be fed by Jesus with those five loaves and two fishes, immediately, notice, notice in the text, immediately he makes his disciples to get into the boat to cross to the other side toward Bethsaida. He makes them. In fact, the Greek word here literally means he compels them. They don't really want to go. They want to have some alone time with Jesus. Maybe they want to just ask Jesus some questions, debriefing with him like, Jesus, wow, we've never seen anything like this before, feeding a crowd of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Hey, Jesus, can, can you just tell us how you did that? Or maybe they're like, you know, Jesus, that was the best fish and bread we've ever tasted. What can you do for dessert? But no, there's none of that. There's no time for dessert. There's no time for questions. The disciples have to learn to connect the dots between who Jesus is and where they are and who they are. They've got to learn to trust Jesus implicitly as the Son of God. They have to learn that even when he's separated from them geographically... He's still with them personally. They need to know that even when they can't see him in the storm or through the storm, that he still sees them. And there's only one place to learn that. On a lake, in a storm, where Jesus will teach them to apply the truth of who he is to what they're facing. And so the disciples jump into the boat And then Jesus ascends to the top of the mountain. Why? Well, the text says he he goes to the top of the mountain to pray. 
to get some alone time with his heavenly Father. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is praying or why Jesus is praying, but maybe it has something to do. I'll ask you to write down this, this text, John 6, verse 15. John 6, verse 15, because we read there, that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowd is so taken with him that they want to take him by force and make him king right there on the spot. I mean, he's just fed 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. Imagine what Jesus, man, man, alive. Can, can you believe what a welfare system? Wow. I mean, Jesus, if he has power to do this, he has power to free them from the Romans and they can be fed well while they're being freed from the Romans. Wow. They want to take Jesus by force and make him king. And so Jesus withdraws to the mountain by himself to pray. You know why? Because the pull to be the people's kind of king is a genuine, real, perpetual temptation for Jesus. He feels it. He can taste the illicit power that would come by pleasing the people. Rather than pleasing his father. Now we recognize this temptation for Jesus because we've seen it before. It was the same temptation that Satan threw at Jesus back in the wilderness. When Satan comes to Jesus and says, come on Jesus, just bow to me for a moment. And I'll give you everything that's rightfully yours. Everything you deserve. You are the king and you can have all the kingdoms right now, right here. If you'll just bow to me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to fulfill the Father's plan. It's okay, Jesus. You can have everything right now that you deserve. But Jesus won't do that. He won't do that in the wilderness. He won't do that with the 5,000 people. You know why? Because there's only one way that Jesus can be the kind of king we need. And that is he has to die. Or we're doomed forever. But Jesus won't let that happen to us. He won't bypass the cross because he loves and cares for us. So he will be the kind of king we need. Even when sometimes he isn't the kind of king we want. So don't think that Jesus sends the disciples away here because he doesn't care for them. No, he is caring for them when he sends them away because something big is about to happen in their boat. Something that didn't happen after Jesus calmed the storm back in Mark chapter 4. Something that didn't happen after Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark chapter 5. Something that didn't even happen when they're holding the, those baskets full of bread and fish in their hands. Right here in Mark 6. It's only after this storm that the disciples begin to affirm and apply the truth of who Jesus is to real life. And that's why verse 52 is the key verse in this text. They missed the point of the loaves. 
They missed the point of the feeding of the 5,000. And they didn't get it until after this storm. And so I wonder, is Jesus right now, before the storm hits, is he up on the mountaintop praying that the Father would open the eyes of the disciples to the reality of who he is so that through the storm they will face, they will see him in all of his grace and in all of his glory when they face the storm. And why will they face the storm? Because Jesus compels them to get into the boat. They face the storm because they are obeying Jesus. Now there's a part of us that I think that probably recoils at that. Because we tend to think and we tend to want that obeying Jesus means good stuff's going to happen. Right? So when I read my Bible in the morning before leaving for work, I expect God to reward me the rest of the day so that so I expect to only hit green lights all the way to work and then later all the way home. I expect God to move in the heart of one of my coworkers to bring donuts to work. I expect smooth sailing when I'm obeying. I don't expect a storm. I mean, if God really loves me, won't he reward my obedience by keeping every storm away from me? I mean, love is supposed to keep us out of danger, right? That's why I've never said to our kids, hey, do you hear that? The tornado sirens are going off. So why don't you go outside and jump on the trampoline for a while? Just so you know, I've never said that. You know why I haven't said that? Because I love my children and I'm not in control of the storm. But God is. Psalm 148 verse 8 says, Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. The God who controls the weather is the God who loves us and is able to use the storm to work for us. Even when the wind is blowing against us, like with the disciples here. They've been on the lake for a while now. And we know that because notice here, Mark gives us a time stamp. We've got evening mentioned here in verse 47. And then we've got the fourth watch of the night mentioned in verse 48. And so we can determine that these disciples have been in the storm on the lake, straining at the oars for hours. But they're only treading water. They've got to be frustrated. They've got to be exhausted. Because usually they could cross the Sea of Galilee in under six hours. But now, now after eight hours, they're stuck in the middle of the lake. The wind is too strong. The night is too dark. Because on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee... There are mountains that reach heights of up to 3,000 feet. 
So when you're out on the water, it's like you're inside of this massive bowl and it's dark. It's really dark, but Jesus sees them. He's been watching while he's praying. He knows that they're going nowhere fast, yet yet he hasn't rescued them yet. Ever thought about that? It seems from the way Mark presents this scene and sets it up for us that Jesus sees them struggling for hours. And yet he remains on the mountaintop, not coming to their rescue. Ever wondered about that? Why wouldn't Jesus see them beginning to struggle and immediately come to rescue them? Well, think about it like this. Have you ever let one of your children you love struggle with something when you could have stepped in to save them? Imagine your four-year-old struggling to reattach that leg that's come off the stuffed animal. And so you want to step in, you want to help, and, but your child says, Mommy, I don't need your help. What do four-year-olds say next? I can do it what? I can do it myself. And you're watching, and you're waiting, and everything within you wants to step in and stop the struggle. But you don't. You wait until your child finally says, Mommy, I can't do it. Please help me. And you do, just like Jesus here, when he comes to the disciples in the storm, stepping into the desperation of their situation by walking to them on the water. Now listen, many people try to explain away this miracle. They say things like, you know, Because it's dark, the disciples just think Jesus is walking on the water, but really he's walking along the shoreline or he's walking in some shallow water or he's walking on a small peninsula that juts out into the lake. You know, one of the reasons I love the Word of God and I believe in the authenticity of the Word of God is because it answers its critics before they ever try to explain away this miracle. Because Matthew chapter 14 verse 24 says that the boat was a long way from land. And in addition to that, remember that the disciples know this lake. Several of them grew up fishing on this lake. And I can tell you from personal experience that when you grow up fishing a body of water, you get to know that body of water. You could do it in the dark. So when these guys tell us that Jesus is walking on the water, you know what that means? He's walking on the water. Even though Newtonian physics says that it can't happen, God can make it happen. You know why? Because God put the laws of physics together. And so in any, at any time and in any way, God can suspend those laws of physics. God can walk on water. And the disciples know that. 
Not because they've seen it before, but because they've read it before in the Old Testament. Job 9 verse 8 says, God treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77 verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Habakkuk 3 verse 15, you walk God through the sea and through the great heap of waters. So when Jesus is walking on the water, it's just not a cool magic trick to really impress the disciples. He is walking with a purpose, using the waves that threaten their lives as a path for his feet to prove that he is God. The disciples see that. With their own eyes. And what would we expect to happen next? We'd expect the disciples to put two and two together here. We'd expect them to immediately recognize Jesus and to invite him into the boat for a big group hug. But that's not what happens. Notice here, they mistake Jesus for a ghost. Because they don't have a category for this. They don't know what to do with this. They're so terrified that they cry out in fear when Jesus comes toward them. But notice the text, what the text says, because as Jesus comes toward them, he intends to pass by them. Wow. Doesn't that seem a bit cold and cruel and callous? Like he's toying with them and taunting them. Any do we have in this room this morning? We've already talked about a dog. And how many of you are dog lovers? Okay. All right. Thank you. How many of you are cat lovers? All right. I'll say that one group of you is genuine Christian, the other group, maybe. (laughs) You know, here, it's like. When we first read this, that Jesus is intending to pass by them, it is like he's toying with them, taunting them. You ever seen a cat do that with a half-dead mouse? Playing with it, poking at it. But don't we sometimes think of God in terms like that from our perspective? Like he's playing cat and mouse with us. Like we've been praying for something, about something for months. And then God seems to step into the desperation of our situation and he seems to be moving. And then all of a sudden, nope. Nope, we misread. We misunderstood. If that's you, then the rest of this story is for you because God does not toy with us or taunt us. He cares for us. In fact, that's why Jesus intends to pass by the boat because in the Old Testament again, when God was about to do something big for his people and show his glory to his people, he would pass by them. You can look it up for yourself. That's what God does with Moses in Exodus chapter 34. It's what God does with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. 
And it happens here when Jesus hears the cry of his disciples as he's passing by them immediately. I love that. Immediately, Jesus stops. And he says, take heart. Buck up, guys. Be brave, guys. Get a grip, guys. Because it's me. It's me. In the Greek, two words. Ego, I, me. Which literally translated means, I am that I am. And I'm here. The I am. With you. And for you. Standing on the waves beside the boat. I am the I am to you. Now, if you're a Jew, those two words smashed together, used by Jesus walking on the waves beside your boat, I am, those are packed with significance. Because I am are the very words that God himself used to reveal himself to Moses through a burning bush back in Exodus. This is Yahweh. Jehovah. God Himself, the God of the Old Testament, is walking on the waves to them. That makes Him a God with a history. The God who split the Red Sea for Moses. The God who stopped the sun in the sky for Joshua. The God who sent fire from heaven for Elijah. And now that very God is standing on the waves beside their boat. Entering into their storm. To show, him, to show them that who he is applies to who they are right where they are. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. Do you see it in verse 50? If you look at the screen, do you see it? It's so good. Do you see how Jesus places himself, the I am, right between our need for courage, take heart, and our propensity to fear? Jesus places himself right in the middle. He comes to us. Entering our situation, climbing into our boat, and then Jesus rescues the disciples from the storm without ever speaking a word to the storm. With just his presence in the boat, the winds don't just diminish or decrease, they literally die. The Greek word here literally means to put to rest. Jesus puts to rest the wind. It's like the deflating of a balloon. He takes the air out of the very thing that's endangering the lives of his men. And notice the disciples are utterly astounded. The Greek says it two different ways using two different words to tell us that these guys are literally shocked out of their heads. You know why? Because of what we read in verse 52. Because they didn't connect the dots between the one who had just fed the 5,000 and the storm they are now facing. That's why it's too much for them to take in. 
In fact, I don't have time to take it in because John chapter 6, verse 21 tells us that immediately when Jesus got in the boat, immediately they were at their destination. They traveled three or four miles instantaneously. We don't know how it happened, but we do know that it did happen, and we know that the disciples couldn't get themselves there. Only Jesus could. They had worked and sweat and rode and strategized to save themselves and to reach their desired destination on their own, but they couldn't do it. And that's why Christ comes to them. He's coming to save them and to bring them to their desired destination, not just by climbing into their boat, but by climbing onto their cross. And by climbing onto their cross, Jesus will enter the greatest storm any human ever has. The storm of God's wrath against our sins. The holy God who must punish sin. And Jesus will step into that storm. And he will answer on our behalf for all who will ever trust him. He he will be the answer. He will calm that storm, enabling all who place their faith and trust in him to reach safely the other side. You know how he does that? Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us because of our sins with all of its legal demands. And in dying, Jesus sets it aside, nailing it to his cross. So that it's always and only by grace That we are saved. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. The disciples try their own doing. They row and they sweat and they strategize. And they can't make it on their own. Only when Jesus steps into their storm. Into their situation. Can they make their desired haven. You see it's not not due to our works. It's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. So can I ask, what are you trusting in to get you to your desired destination? What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Maybe you're working hard and you're sweating hard and you're you're being and doing all that you can be and do. And this text says to you, you can't do enough. You can't be enough. Trust Jesus. Only He is enough. And when He climbs onto your cross, He climbs into your boat. Trust Him. By grace alone, through faith alone. He will save you. And when He saves you, you will reach your destination when you apply the truth of who He is to where you are like these disciples. They're starting to get it. The light bulb is starting to turn on. Matthew 14, verse 33 
Matthew, one of the guys in that boat, he tells us in, the, in that verse that those in the boat worshipped Jesus saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now they aren't all in yet, but they're on their way. It's like 28 years ago at the altar of Calvary Baptist Church in Highland, Indiana, where I said, I do to Joanna. I affirmed my love to her that day. But then, for 28 years, I've been learning to apply that love in real life. That's the disciples here. They're at the altar. They're affirming their faith in Jesus as the Son of God, but they've got a ways to go in applying that truth to real life, just like each of us. And so as I conclude this morning, let me just give you three suggestions, three ways from this text, how you can, how you can move from just affirming the truth that Jesus is the Son of God to applying that truth. All right, here we go. Three action steps this morning. Number one, see Jesus in the storm. See Jesus in the storm. Listen, please get this, please. There are so many truths about our King that we will learn only in the storm. That we cannot learn anywhere else. Where do we learn who Jesus really is? That he's the sea walker and the storm stopper? We learn it during a dark night on the middle of a lake in a storm. Remember this. God never promises to keep us from the storm. He promises to keep us through the storm. It's Isaiah 43, verse 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, that's where you'll learn that I will be with you. And through the rivers, that's where you will learn that they shall not overwhelm you. So secondly, after you see Jesus in the storm, you recall God's faithfulness in the past. Recall God's faithfulness in the past. Listen, let me ask you a question. Does God have a history with you? Does God have a history with you? You ever been in a storm before? Ever experienced his faithfulness in that storm? You see, God has a history, not just in the pages of this Bible, but in the pages of your own life. So connect the dots between what God has already done and where you are right now. After last Sunday's message, last Sunday's message was on Jesus is enough And a lady in our church wrote me a note, and she concluded her note this way. Being 96 years old, she said, I can say that Jesus is enough. Now watch this. I've found it true many times over. You see what she's doing? She's connecting the dots. God's history. 
in her life. She's taking notes. She's applying. And she says this morning to each and every one of us at 96 years old, God has been faithful every step of the way. So how do you respond when you find yourself in a storm yet again? Do you freak out all over again? You wonder why this is happening all over again? You wonder where God is in all this all over again? There are probably some of us in this room who are in those moments right now, and if we were honest, we're better at seeing ghosts than we are at seeing Jesus. We get fearful and discouraged and distraught all over again, as if we'd never seen His glory before or tasted His grace before or known His presence before. Remember that when we've been there before, God's been there too with us and for us, enabling us, thirdly, to recognize Jesus as the source of our courage. Recognize Jesus as the source of our courage. The next time you're tempted to fear because you feel your vulnerability in that storm, remember this. Jesus Christ a real human being living in real human time and real human space went walking on the water to his disciples, revealing his grace and glory to them because he loved them in the same way he loves you. And so when he says to them, take heart, he's saying the same to you. Whatever the difficulty, whatever the danger, Jesus is saying, take heart. You are more than a conqueror through me because I have loved you. Take heart. I am for you, so who can be against you? Take heart. Greater am I, the one who is with you and in you, than he who is in the world. Take heart. I am the one who stands between your fears and your faith. Take heart. I am the I am. Do not be afraid. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. In it you reveal the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who possesses all authority in both heaven and on earth. And we thank you that he's a personal Savior. Can I ask this morning, as we come to our Lord's table, is he your personal Savior? Do you know him? Or would you have to say this morning, you know, Pastor Ken, I've been... I've been like these disciples. I've been rowing. I've been working. I've been sweating. I need grace. Like these men, I need Jesus to do for me what I could never do. To bring me to my desired destination of heaven. Would you just cry out in faith right now? To Jesus, the Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you cry out?
in faith. And believer, we're about to come and feed our souls and all that God is for us in Jesus. Do you see with fresh eyes and believe with a fresh heart that Jesus really is the Son of God? That He really is with you? He's praying for you? That you're not alone in the storm? And that He's enough? Would you apply that truth that you affirm in real life? for his glory and his glory alone. In his name, amen.